Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we are starting a new series uh, in the book of First Samuel. And before Ashley comes to read the scriptures, I just want to say a few things about that. Why are we studying First Samuel? Well, because in and through the history of the people of Israel, we, we see some important things. We see how God rules and reigns as king. You see, we see him raise up uh, priests and leaders and, and kings, and we also see him lower and put away priests and leaders and kings. Uh, in the Bible's timeline, the book of Judges has just ended, and it ended terribly. <laughs> it ended with, with, with all these horrible events, and right at the end of Judges, the Bible says, everyone in Israel was just doing right, doing what was right in their own eyes. And so into this dismal state of affairs, God the king enters, and he's beginning to put things right. And in 1 Samuel, we get this look. At, at who we are, who God, is, how God, who God is, and how Jesus is the king that Israel really needed and that we still need today. Now you may have noticed that the scripture reading is not on the back middle panel of the bulletin. It's, it, it eclipses that. We had to start you know, even further back. It's quite long today. Uh, but it's this story that we really couldn't take in two parts, at least in you know, my humble opinion. So we're going to read it all. You know, settle in. Ashley will read this for us. And then I'll be back uh, and we'll spend some time considering it together. Ashley. 1 Samuel 1 and 2.10. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elikon, the son of Jerome, son of Elihu, son of Tahu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was P uh, Pina. And Pina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elikanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Pina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, the, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elikanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. As she vowed, sorry, as she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be, uh, to be a drunk woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away for you, from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. 
Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went on her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to the house of Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The men, Elkanah, and all his house went up to offer to the Lord their yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah and her husband said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull and ephah of flour and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord, and as long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind, uh, bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversities of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them, He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. All right. We are going to spend some time reflecting on that text. Thanks, Ashley. Longest ever front appearance for someone else. Uh, We are in this book of 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel was written around 1120 B.C. 1120 B.C. Now, the author may have told us that The ancient city of Troy had recently fallen to the Greeks around 1120 BC. Or that the uh, city of Pyongyang, now the capital of North Korea, had recently been founded. Or that the Phoenicians, they were busy, busy developing an alphabet and founding what would become the city of Lisbon. We might have learned all these things about what was happening in the world in 1120 BC, but we don't learn any of those things. Instead, the beginning of 1 Samuel is a bit disorienting. 
because we are just thrust, we are just sort of tossed headlong into this little story taking place in the hills of Israel. The author of 1 Samuel does not pause to give us the big picture. There's no prelude. We just dive headfirst into this troubled story of this family, Elkanah, Hannah, and Peninnah. Now, why does the author ignore major world events to focus on this one family? Um, is it feeding back, George? Are we okay? Do you need to change anything? Sorry. Why are we ignoring major theological world events to focus on this one family? And the reason is this, because the scriptures are not telling us a world history. They are telling us God's history. It's a theological telling of history uh, of what God has done from beginning to end. And with all due respect to the Trojans and the Phoenicians and the Koreans and, and, and others, God didn't begin in any of those countries. He began with the Israelites. And they were chosen, not because they were particularly special or powerful, but simply because, because God loved them. So it's interesting to me, maybe it's interesting to you, all the other things happening in the world in 1120 BC. There's a whole Wikipedia page about it. You can go find it. But the theological camera does not focus any of those places. It zooms all the way in until we find Elkanah, son of Jeroham, husband to Hannah and husband to Peninnah. And in the story of this family that we're going to look at this morning, we see how God works in little ways to tell us big things about who he is. Indeed, the main way, when, when it comes to narratives, when it comes to stories in the scriptures, uh, what we should look for is either what the narrator is telling us, sometimes they tell us things, but more often the narrator simply shows us things. It doesn't spell out the theological truth behind it, it just shows us who God is and what he is doing. And of course, as we'll see in a moment when we talk about polygamy, the author isn't condoning everything recorded here. The author is focused on what is God doing in the midst of this story. Now with narratives, obviously, we have more ground to cover each week. The reading was quite long, and so we're going to move quicker through the individual verses. We're not going to get to every little, you know, jot and tittle or whatever. But here is how I want to look at our text. We'll talk about barrenness, it kind of kicks off the story. We'll talk about provision, and then we're going to kind of go through that chapter two, that prayer that Hannah gives. This is who God is. So first, barrenness. Now we quickly discover in the opening verses that Hannah has almost everything a wife in the ancient Near East could want. She has a husband from a good family. The length of Elkanah's genealogy signals this is a reasonably prominent family. They're well known. We know that Elkanah was, was wealthy. He had at least enough money to provide for two wives. That wouldn't have been every man. We know that he's diligent in worship. Every year, it says in verse 3, every year they're going up to Shiloh, where the current temple was, to make sacrifices. In this stage of Israelites' history, Jerusalem wasn't Jerusalem yet. There was no temple there. In fact, it was probably um, occupied by Jebusites or whatever at this point. Elkanah is a good man from a good family. He's doing well financially. But most importantly for Hannah, uh, Elkanah loved her. He was affectionate toward her. Verse 5 tells us of Elkanah's love and that he was sympathetic and generous toward his wife. So Hannah has just about everything. But of course, the only thing she doesn't have is children. She's not able to conceive. And in this time, even more so than our time, in this time, this is a devastating blow. It's filled with shame and stigma of many different kinds. But I think for us, reading this, the most troubling part of this whole passage is verse 6. It tells us her failure to conceive was because the Lord had closed her womb. Hannah's barrenness is directly attributed to the action of God. Now, that doesn't mean that God was performing, you know, miracle after miracle to stop each, you know, potential pregnancy. 
Rather, God uses normal means, ordinary means, to accomplish his will. So the closing of Hannah's womb, it was very likely something that, you know, modern doctors could, to, could diagnose or understand. But the fact remains, the text says, God was behind it. Now, it's not easy to understand why God makes some woman barren, either ancient women like Hannah or modern women. Now, theologians have speculated, and I think it's a decent guess, well, maybe Hannah's barrenness, it symbolizes the spiritual barrenness of Israel at that time. Her empty womb, it, it's, a, it's a kind of symbol for how empty Israel was of true religion. You know, that, that may be, that's like an interesting theological idea, but it removes none of the pain for a, a woman like Hannah. Does very little to soothe any ache that's inside of her. Now, the scriptures are clear, though, that God uses trials. He sends trials, including childlessness, into our lives for his own reasons. Sometimes those reasons become clear. Sometimes we're able to discern them. Sometimes in hindsight, we can say, oh, I I can see now what God was doing. But sometimes we never understand. But we do know that nothing comes to us unless it has passed through the hands of a good father. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But it is likely because of Hannah's inability to conceive that there's this second wife, Peninnah. We aren't told, but there are enough stories inside and outside the scriptures to guess that in ancient cultures, if you you were a husband and your wife cannot conceive, you would try again with a second wife. Children, descendants, it meant everything. And this is very likely, likely why Peninnah comes into the picture. Her name, by the way, means prolific. And she's part of the family. Elkanah desperately wants to preserve his line. So he takes his second wife, and she is able to have children. Doesn't say how many, but we can assume it's many. By the way, there's an important question now. Is the Bible condoning polygamy? Is 1 Samuel, it should be an application point of this sermon be, hey, if your first wife doesn't work out for some reason, you know, go find a second wife. The, The answer is no. Look, there's no explicit condemnation of polygamy here, but we do know a couple things, and they mostly come from reading the whole of the scriptures. The first thing we know is that from the very beginning, God's intention was for the joining of one man and one woman. That was the model. That's what God prescribed for humanity. Second, almost every time we see polygamy in the scriptures, it causes problems. Remember that showing versus telling things? Narrators everywhere in the Bible are showing us the problems polygamy causes, even if they aren't telling us, in every case, that it is a problem. If you know the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, problems. If you know the story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah, problems. If you heard the story this morning, Elkanah and Hannah and Peninnah, problems. We are being shown polygamy's shortcomings. And of course, third, and perhaps most importantly, the New Testament reaffirms one man, one woman for marriage. Jesus, all the other New Testament writers, they all agree on this. So polygamy, polyamory, open relationships, whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to call it, all of that is not permissible for the people of God. That's not God's intent for his people. And this second wife is causing problems. Again, we might speculate that Peninnah uh, notices that Elkanah really loves his, his Hannah more. He's, he's giving her extra portions, extra love. That's not to excuse Peninnah for what she does. Just simply to note, this triangle of relationships, it's, it's complicated. No matter the reason, no matter the history, Peninnah is harsh to Hannah. We do know that. Verse 6, she provokes Hannah and grievously irritates her. It's not too hard to imagine. It doesn't take much imagination to think of all of the little comments or the jabs or the barbs, all the way the knife of barrenness might be twisted in Hannah's gut. And Peninnah even uses their, their annual spiritual pilgrimages, these yearly trips to Shiloh, to get back at Hannah. 
You see verse 7? So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she, that's Penina, used to provoke her, that's Hannah. No rest for Hannah. Everywhere she turns, even going to church, going to the temple, she's reminded of her barrenness. And as we might expect, Hannah's barrenness results in weeping. That's in verse 7. She's so upset she cannot eat, also in verse 7. She's in deep distress, that's verse 10. Bitter weeping, verse 10. In fact, so much heartache is coming out in her body and manner that the Eli the priest thinks she is drunk. Think about how distraught you'd have to be for someone to assume that you're intoxicated. Two things about barrenness I want you to see, I want you to think about. And the first is very obvious, but the utter toll it takes on those who experience it. Now, I only have limited experience with uh, barrenness and miscarriage. Jen and our first pregnancy resulted in a miscarriage. It was a terribly difficult season, but it was one. And for those who experience miscarriages over and over and over, it is indeed a terrible sorrow. For those who are unable to conceive at all, they don't even get to the place where they can have a miscarriage. That is, too, a terrible sorrow. Month after month of disappointment, despite all of our medical advances, the inability to conceive... It's relatively common. And going to church isn't always a help. Because in a church like ours, you come and you're like, there's pregnant women and babies and families everywhere. And it just makes the ache worse. And for those of you walking through barrenness, whether it's a short season like Jen and I or a longer season, I just want to acknowledge the deep distress, the bitterness, the weeping it causes. And God knows and he sees. And look, we, we just aren't told. We are never told why some wombs are open and others are shut. It's just a feature of the world. And yet I'm sorry and I mourn with those of you suffering barrenness. It will be an important wrestle in your soul to understand how the God of the scriptures sometimes calls people to things they'd never choose for themselves, which includes barrenness. And I also want to remind all of us, particularly those of us with families, of the spiritual support that's needed for those in barrenness. Because it's not just a a biological or physiological problem. I mean, like it is that, but it's also a spiritual problem. Because Christians, we're people who believe God's in control of everything. And if he's in control of everything, then he controls wombs and conceptions. And therefore, we we believe, you know, following the logical chain, that he can help and, and he can heal. This is what the scriptures teach. And so when he does not, when all the prayers hit the ceiling, it can cause tremendous difficulty and tremendous challenge to a person's faith. And sometimes, maybe even often, the weeping and the bitterness and distress, they don't push a person toward God, but away from him. And there are many people who walk away from their faith because they find themselves where Hannah found herself, desperately wanting a child, and not understanding why God will not come through. So as a church, look, we have to pray, we have to help where we can for those experiencing barrenness and childlessness. But the second thing you need to know or think about about barrenness is that in a very strange way, barren women have played an outsized role in God's plan to save the world. We find barren women all over the place in the scriptures. 
Sarah, Abraham's wife, she couldn't conceive until her old age. Isaac is sort of miraculously born. John the Baptist, miracle baby, born to parents in their old age. Joseph, Benjamin, born to this mother who had trouble conceiving. Over and over, there's, there's more, but over and over, God works through barren women. Have you ever thought about why that is? Well, I think childlessness, barrenness, is one of the few issues that humans face that really makes us feel powerless. Poverty, it's hard, but there are ways out. It can be overcome. Disease, deformity, if it doesn't kill us, it can sometimes be adapted to. Natural disasters, and we can guard against them in some sense. But against childlessness, you know, some percentage of cases, there's just nothing we can do. And so God, in his wisdom, is taking a place where there is utter incapacity of humanity and he is making something from nothing. He's taking a situation where people have lost hope and they don't have any answers and he provides so that they will know it's all from God and not from them. The provision of a child to a barren woman, it's salvation, you know, written in tiny letters. It's just a picture of what God does. He makes some things out of nothings. He brings hope to the hopeless. He enters in to provide salvation where there was no other way. Barren women play an outsized role in God's plan to save the world. Let's talk about part two, provision. What does Hannah's deep distress drive her to? Well, it drives her to the temple of the Lord to pray. If you look at verse 8, the family is having this ceremonial meal. They've gone up to Shiloh uh, and, and, they're, and they're there and, they, and, they, um, and, and Hannah does not eat. Now, Elkanah tries to make her feel better. It's hard to read on whether he's being kind of insensitive, whether he's trying to help. He's like, at least you have me. It's like, that's not really going to do a lot. Um, but, but after the meal ends, so she can't eat. She's upset. After the meal ends in verse 9, she rises. She goes to the temple, and she passes by Eli the priest. He's sitting by the door. Uh, and we'll learn more about Eli here in, in a few, or I think next week or in a few weeks' time. He make, but he, right here, he makes some assumptions about Hannah that are incorrect. He thinks that her prayer and her praying are the actions of a drunk woman. But of course, he's mistaken. She's not drunk, she's desperate. And we learn in verse 13, she's not even praying out loud. She, she's, she's praying in her heart, but Eli misinterprets and accuses her of being drunk. She's like, I haven't had, I haven't had wine or strong drink. I haven't had, haven't had anything. Now, her prayer and praying, I'm sure, was, was lengthy, but at least part of it is recorded in verse 11. And I want to point out four quick things that Hannah knew that are revealed in this prayer. First, she knew God. She calls God the Lord of hosts. Now, very interestingly, sort of Bible nerd moment, this is the very first time this name of God is used in all the scriptures. So think about this. Moses, Abraham, Jacob, Joshua, all the rest, none of them called God this, at least that we know of. God, Lord of hosts, that does not mean that God is good at hosting, good at having people over, you know, whatever. Hosts means armies or army. Some more casual translations, perhaps you've heard of this. They would translate this name, God of angel armies. Now, why is that important? Because Hannah addresses her prayer to the God who commands, if you were here last week, Frankie preached, myriads of myriads, hundreds of millions of angels. That's who she's praying to. This God does not lack strength. He does not lack power. He cannot be thwarted. He is the Lord of hosts. And she knows that. She knew God in a way perhaps few others of her time actually did. So she knew God. Second, she knows herself. She knows that she's in deep distress. If you look at verse 17, she tells Eli, I've been praying out of great anxiety and vexation. 
Now, vexation, that's one of those, you know, Anna Green Gables words. It means uh, uh, some combination of annoyance and frustration and angst. This woman does not ignore her emotional state. She knows what the feelings that are being produced inside of her by her barrenness. And, and most importantly, those feelings actually become a doorway to prayer. She enters into prayer through those feelings. It's the reason to go to God. Now, I'm one of those people who don't always understand what I'm feeling. But I can tell you, the personal prayer makes a lot more sense. It feels much more alive when I can pray with my brain, with my mind, and also with my heart. If I know oh, I'm, I'm angry or frustrated or hurt or lonely or whatever I am, if that can be the doorway to prayer, I'm telling you, that makes prayer click in a different way. This deep hurt of barrenness becomes a reason for Hannah to earnestly seek God. So she knew God, she knew, she knew herself. Third, she knows what she wants. Hannah's not shy in asking God for what she wants. Think about that contrast for a minute. She is appealing to the God of angel armies, ruler of the universe. Would you bend down and hear my prayer? A woman living in the hills of a small country, you know, far from the center of power. But she says, would you give me a son? Notice she doesn't just ask for a child. Like, not that she's opposed to girls, but she says, I, I, I want a boy. How many of you know what you want from God? Sometimes Frankie asks me the question, what do you need from Jesus today? Or what do you need from Jesus this week? It always takes me a bit off guard. It's pretty forthright. But if Hannah is a good, uh, a good example for us, then Frankie's question is exactly right. What do you want from God? What are you asking for from God? He's not a pinata to be hit so that good things will fall out. No, no. He's to be approached as the ruler of the universe. But because he rules everything, it means all things are within his power. And if you are a parent, you understand that you want to know what your kids want. It's not always going to be a yes, of course, but you like to be asked. The Apostle James, James 4 verse 2 says, you don't have because you don't ask. <laughs> okay. Hannah asks. Now look, she also promises to give the child back to God for service to him. I don't think that's sort of necessary. I don't think her promise sort of leveraged God into giving her a baby. That's not how prayer works. The application point here is, please don't drop your children off at the church office, you know. We're low on granola bars. You don't need to do that. But Hannah asked, and she just knows, if God is gracious, the child will be a gift. And fourth, Hannah knows the comfort of the Lord. So she prays, she pours out her heart to God. She gets blessed by Eli the priest. He kind of realizes his mistake. Verse 18, it says, she leaves, she eats, and she's no longer sad. Now look. That's not always the case. That's not always what happens after prayer. It's like, oh, everything is better. You know, my whole internal state is solved. But listen, honest, fervent prayer, it does change us. It changes our internal state. Or God uses prayer to change us. But prayer also changes things. Or again, more accurately, God changes things in answers to prayer. Verse 19, the Lord remembered her. In the Old Testament, whenever you find this phrase, God remembered something, that means God acted. God opened her womb. Hannah and Elkanah come together. She conceives and bears a son, and she names him Samuel, which means God has heard. God has heard. One thing I want you to see about how God provides. The normal course of provision in the life of a Christian is, is sort of a, a partnership or a cooperation between the Christian and God. But I'm going to offer this with, with a number of caveats, of course. But if, if a person, if a Christian never asks, never acts, 
Sometimes God provides graciously anyways. Sometimes he just gives anyways. And sometimes God says no. Even if you ask, even if you act, God says no, nothing happens. Most commonly though, we see this all over the scriptures, we act, we pray, um, we request, and God comes through with power and change. But it's cooperative. It it, it comes together. Philippians 2 uh, says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So in the same breath, the Apostle Paul will be like, uh, work out your salvation, you know, go get it humbly, reverently. And at the same time, God will be working in you to will and to act. Both are true simultaneously. You are doing sort of your part. God is working. Now, in kind of like reformed-ish circles like ours, We can sometimes get a little too fatalistic, a little too passive about the Christian life. We think, well, God's God. He'll do whatever he wants. I'll just kind of sit and wait for him to do something. What does it matter what I do? For Samuel 1, Philippians 2, and many other passages that say, it matters greatly what you do. God's told you to ask. God's told you, you don't have because you don't ask. And it's kind of an unanswerable question, but what if Hannah had not prayed? What if after all the normal you know, efforts at, at having children failed, what if she just kind of gave up at that point? I'm not trying to guilt trip you about your prayer life. I'm trying to encourage you. What are you asking God for? What do you feel desperate about? Where have you hit the end of your resources and need God to come through? God allows and he encourages personal, even desperate asking. But that leads us to part three. This is who God is. Now, I included this part in chapter two because I think it's important. It moves beyond sort of a retelling of the historical events to to, to some insight on what's going on in Hannah's heart. What's she believing about God uh, when when she's praying and being answered? And I want to use her prayer in chapter two to look at this picture she paints of who God is. And I'm going to divide this prayer into two sections. The first section is just verse one. And I call this part Hannah, because here she describes what God has done for her. If you look carefully, all the pronouns are personal and individual. Whose heart is exalting in God? Hannah's heart. Whose mouth is deriding her enemies? Hannah's mouth. If you look at all the personal pronouns, my heart, my horn, my mouth, I rejoice. Hannah wants us to know God does not just act in generic ways in the universe, like the laws of thermodynamics or whatever, but, but he is acting personally and individually in each of our lives. Though Christians believe in a God who commands angel armies, we also believe in a God who comes into our individual lives to be with us. We believe each individual must respond to God on their own. Now, we baptize children here. I know not all of you agree with me about that, but listen, here's something we can't agree on. Baptized or unbaptized, Every child must make a decision to follow Jesus or not. Our hearts have to move at some point from a general salvation offered widely to humanity to the specific salvation offered to you. But it doesn't stop with salvation because that's not what Hannah's talking about. Hannah's referencing a successful conception and birth. She's not really talking about being saved from her sins. And in the same way, Christians have to go on trusting God in a personal way long after they first accept Christ. We exalt for God for what he does in salvation, but also what he continues to do day by day in the present. C.S. Lewis writes, trusting God begins every day as if nothing had yet been done. And all he means by that is that faith and trust, it's fickle. You got to exercise it. You got to put it to work. 
You need an individual faith that trusts God for things in your life. So that's the first part of the prayer. That's Hannah. The rest of the prayer, verse 2 to 10, it's sort of God in general. Hannah moves from the specific and personal to the general and public. She talks about God being holy. She talks about him being a rock. She tells the proud and arrogant, hey, he said, knock it off. It tells the warriors, put down your bows. Why? Because God is at work in the world. He's at work in Hannah's life, but really that's just a symbol for how he's at work everywhere. And if you look at the description, she's saying everything is upside down. The full are going hungry. The wealthy are hiring themselves out to work. The barren women are bearing children. I'm sure that's referencing her. The women with their hands full of children are suddenly barren. The poor are being lifted from the ash heap. Beggars are sitting with princesses. You know, right is left, east is west. Everything is upside down. Hannah's just telling us something very important. The gift of this baby Samuel, it's a small picture or a small corner of the massive canvas that God is painting in the world. The mini salvation of a baby for a barren woman, it's a demonstration of the the macro, the big salvation that will come to everyone everywhere. Most married people wear, wear a wedding ring. And if I were to come to you after the service today, if you're married and say, hey, why do you wear a ring? You'd say something like, well, it's a a sign of my love and commitment to my spouse. You know, she gave me this one or I gave her that one or whatever. And if I responded, well, is it the whole of your love? Say, no, of course not. It's just a a symbol. It's a picture of the love. But if I were to say, hey, well, can I have it? You know, or or can I have it for 50 bucks? Can I buy it off you? You'd say, say, no, no, you can't buy it off me. Uh, even, Even though it's a small part of our love, it has tremendous meaning. And in the same way, look, Samuel is not all the love God has for the world. Of course not. It's just a small part. And yet Hannah would never trade it, not for anything. For her, that baby has immeasurable worth. The salvation that God wrought in Hannah's life, it's just a symbol of the salvation that he will eventually bring to everyone everywhere. And this salvation will not be what you expect. It'll upend all your expectations. It'll reverse the normal course of the world. Why? Because, well, we'll learn in the New Testament that it'll be a salvation by grace apart from works. The salvation to come, it's going to be unearnable. Because the picture that is being painted of God, of how God saves, is that he comes to a world that is barren. Not of children, but of goodness and righteousness. He comes to a world that can't conceive a salvation for ourselves. We can't bring it about by our own might. All our failures are ringing in our ears and they make us ashamed. And so what we need is a salvation miraculously delivered by God. See, the place to find yourself in this story today is not as Elkanah, not as Peninnah, Eli the priest, or even as some unnamed onlooker. If you're looking for yourself in this story, look at Hannah. Because we're all at the end of our rope. We're desperate, not always for children, but for a salvation we cannot accomplish on our own. And that desperation makes fools of the wise, it makes the strong weak, it makes the triumphant failures, and that's always where God comes in. See, the end of the prayer, verses 9 and 10, give us a hint of what lies ahead. Hannah says, the faithful will be guarded, the wicked will be cut off, the adversaries of God will get broken into pieces. Who or what are the adversaries of God? When we learn from Jesus that he says he comes to fight against sin, Satan, and death. Who is Jesus thundering against in the heavens? Those are his adversaries. That is who he defeats with the cross and the resurrection. His adversaries are not flesh and blood, but the spiritual powers that had us imprisoned. 
1 Samuel tips us off that one day, long in the future, another baby would be born to another unlikely mother. And it wouldn't just save her from stigma, but he would save a barren world from the fruit of its ways. That's who God is. That's the kind of king he is. A king who saves and delivers. A king who comes to those who desperately need him. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for this text, this story, which tells us something about who you are. Give us eyes to see it. Give us ears to hear it. To see your salvation that you are bringing. And it's in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen.